Hello, Padrishners. We hear on a regular basis from people in our extended internet Woodland Hills community uh, the need to feel more connected uh, with uh, the ministry here. Um, we have a number of people, an increasing number of people, who are starting house churches or holding Bible studies uh, on, that are centered on the teachings of, of this ministry. And they feel the need to be more in touch with what one person referred to as the mothership. Some of the stories of these parishioners are moving and humbling. For example, a couple days ago, I just got an email from uh, a couple in Yemen who are ministering to Muslims in a pretty hostile environment. In fact, they recently had three of their converts uh, arrested. And I'd like you to pray for those folks uh, that they'd be quickly released. And this, this dear couple emailed us just to ask us to pray for these folks and also to express their gratitude for us podcasting the messages, telling us what a source of strength and encouragement they are to their ministry. And I can't tell you how humbling it is uh, to know that we're making a difference to folks, radical disciples like this on the other side of the globe. It's just, it's just beautiful. But they, like so many others, could really benefit from feeling more connected to the mothership. And so we're in the process of redeveloping our website and looking at a number of possibilities uh, to help create this sense of community among those who are podcasters. And so pray for us as we move forward in uh, this endeavor. We also have heard over the last several years uh, people wondering how they can contribute financially to Woodland Hills Church when they're not here on the weekends when we take up an offering. And I'm happy to tell you that as of three weeks ago, uh, we have the capacity uh, to receive online donations. Now, if you've been a parishioner for any length of time, you know that we're, to- we're adamantly opposed to ever pressuring people to contribute to the ministry. Um, kingdom giving is supposed to be done out of love and joy, not out of guilt, shame, or manipulation or anything of the sort. Uh, our philosophy is that our job is to let the needs be known and then to ask people to simply seek God's will as to how they would steward God's resources because, after all, in the end, it all belongs to God. Now, the need we have here at Woodland Hills Church is this. Like so many other churches uh, during this time of economic crisis, we are significantly behind in our budget. And so if you feel so led, we could really use your support. Again, it's an honor to serve you, and I encourage you to live out the radical, beautiful, Jesus-looking kingdom 24-7. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. God bless. My name is Greg. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's really good to see you folks uh, out there and coming together to worship, enjoy our children's ministry, and uh, then we're going to share a little bit uh, from the Word. I uh, have a really great message that I prepared for this weekend, and it's called Mary's Messy Yes. Daniel, can you show that? Mary's Messy Yes. Just show the... Isn't that a cool picture of Mary? And this is the Annunciation, and, and I have a great message prepared uh, on the Annunciation out of Luke, and we're going to take a couple weeks to meditate on and kind of reflect around Mary. If, you understood, if, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that Mary's one of my favorite people in the Bible. She's very meaningful to me, has been since childhood. Um, but that's not what I'm going to preach. Oh, <laughs> tough crowd this morning. You guys are... I, uh, this has only happened a couple times, a couple times with me before, but I uh, about... Well, I began to sense something even during the week. I prepared this message, and I think it's really good, and I'm looking forward to giving it. But as the week went on, something was brewing in me, and I didn't know quite what it was, but a feeling of, I don't know, a different direction. And then uh, 
I even blogged on it a little bit uh, earlier this week. And uh, then just before the service last night, I just felt I'm supposed to put that one on the back burner and launch in a different direction. And just share some things that are on my heart that I think are just important right now. And, um, and so as I said to the crowd last night, if this message comes across as half-baked, it's because it's not even half-baked. <laughs> it's, it's very much off the cuff. Uh, but I think it's what I'm supposed to uh, share. Over the last couple of weeks, I think we've done a really good job of just kind of opening our eyes to consumerism and really slamming consumerism and uh, really calling attention to how it goes on steroids during the Christmas season. Sandra talked along those lines last week, and she did a great job, and I talked along those lines the week before that. In fact, Luke's been hitting on that theme quite a bit, and we've been preaching out of the book of Luke. And so we've really, I think, uh, hammered that pretty well. At the same time, in the last six weeks, seven weeks, we've been, uh, during every ministry moment, putting out opportunities to give sacrificially to the poor. And these various ministries that are run through Woodland Hills Church and things of that sort. And I, and I want to say that uh, you folks have responded magnificently. Um, in, in this time of economic crisis, when, when things are tight for almost everybody, uh, you guys have really stepped up to the plate. I, I don't know uh, all the details of all the ministries, but I know some of the details of some of the ministries. And they have just been powerfully blessed. Uh, it really has been a, an outpouring of love. There's a lot of families that are being ministered to in the inner city that wouldn't be ministered to except for the fact that you guys stepped up to the plate. And there's going to be a lot of kids going to school in Haiti who otherwise wouldn't be going to school in Haiti. And, and uh, a lot of other ministries, people being fed and, and things of that sort. And I've just been really impressed with how you've responded. And I'm very proud of, of this church and, and, and the, just the way everyone has stepped up. And so thank you for that. I think we've done such a good job at, at highlighting the ministries of the poor that um, in some ways the, the offerings here have suffered a little bit. So don't forget about us. You may have noticed that in, in the offering plate. And we'll have to deal with this uh, if things don't turn around here pretty quick. But our, our job is not to try to uh, take up as big offering here as we can. Our job is to make known the needs and the opportunities and to trust that people will follow God's leading as to how they steward their resources. And it's just been a blessing to see folks Honestly, just step up and, and give sacrificially to all these different causes that we've been putting out there. But everything in the kingdom needs balance. Uh, it's one of the most important words, most important concepts uh, in, in kingdom teaching, balance. And there's been some questions that I've been wrestling with that have come up recently that, that I just want to talk around a little bit. Uh, on Friday night, I went to see this really marvelous film. Uh, I think probably the best film I've seen all year. It's called uh, Slum Dog Millionaire. Has anyone seen that? It's a powerful, powerful, in many ways beautiful uh, love story. Um, it's also in some respects a really hard movie to watch, but it's just brilliant the way it was put together. And um, uh, it deals with some, some, uh, these two kids, actually three kids, that come out of the slums of India in Bangkok, which is now uh, Murma. And... Um, it deals with their life and how hard that was for them. And the level of poverty is just unthinkable. It's just unthinkable. The way these kids have to live is just unbelievable. It's very realistic. And afterwards, my small group was processing the, the, the film. And one of the folks in our group said, do you ever just feel guilty for being an American? 
Ever feel just guilty? When you look at how little the rest of the world has and how much we have, and you know, just by virtue of the fact that you're not suffering the way they suffer, you can feel guilty. And I totally, totally get that. I feel in some ways shame for just being born American. That you're not, you don't have as bad off as other people. I've had several people mention to me the last, over the last several weeks a certain amount of guilt over celebrating Christmas. I mean, how, what is the justification for giving extra stuff, any extra stuff, to the people you love and to your kids when there are people in the world who don't even have the basic necessities? Why do that? And then looped in with that is another set of questions that I wrestle with almost every uh, Christmas season uh, it, it, that people usually raise uh, every Christmas season, and it's basically this. Most of you will know that the celebration of December 25th as the birthday of Christ is not a biblical concept. In fact, it's pagan in origin. Um, it, it was a religious holiday long before Christianity ever adopted it. It was the celebration of the birthday of the god Mithra before it became the birthday, uh, celebration of the birthday of, of Christ. And before that, it was uh, part of the ancient Greek celebration of fertility and, and of the harvest. Uh, They would have 12 days of drunken orgies leading up to the celebration of the winter solstice on December 25th. That's where we get the 12 days of Christmas from. 12 days of drunken orgies. Uh, On the first day of... uh, Let's not go there. Um, So it's pagan in origin and a lot of its symbolism. In fact, almost all of its symbolism is pagan. The Christmas tree comes from the Nordic religion which celebrated fertility and the the Christmas lights are, you know, originally were candles to ward off demons and there's all sorts of paganism around that. And then, I, I don't know if there's any kids in the audience, so I, I have to couch what I'm going to say now, but uh, the, the whole legend of St. Nicholas and giving toys, that goes back way long, you know, back in the 6th century, but it, it, it got transformed into the sleigh rider, magical reindeer kind of thing that comes, you know, kind of down the you-know-what and delivers you-know-what uh, as a marketing tool in the 19th century, and man, did it work. It, it's worked magnificently, probably the best, in fact, undoubtedly the best marketing tool ever devised. So not only is the pagan in origin, but Christmas is, is, has been, uh, for the last 200 years, enveloped in this consumerism. And so some people ask the question, why do we even celebrate it? On top of that, it actually helps trivialize the meaning of Christ um, because it's looped up with all this uh, consumerism and, and it feeds this whole idea that this is something we celebrate once or twice a year and then forget about it the rest of the year. And so if some folks say, well, we shouldn't even celebrate it. Uh, There's no justification for giving extra stuff when people don't have their basic necessities and it's a pagan holiday anyways wrapped up with consumerism. So should we feel guilty celebrating Christmas? What I want to do here in the next half hour is explain why I don't feel guilty celebrating Christmas and why I, in fact, don't feel any guilt over being an American. Though I have clothes that most of the world can't have and live in a dwelling that most of the world can't dwell in, drive a car that most of the world can't drive, I don't think I have an extravagant life at all, but I certainly have more than the majority of the world, and probably so do you, but I don't feel guilty about it. Let me get at this by sharing a story that I've shared several years ago. Um, So if you've been here for a while, you might remember this, but it's worth sharing again. But when I went to Haiti for the first time, about 13 or 14 years ago, uh, it was a a really eye-opening experience, and that was a really good thing. It's one of the values of going on a missions trip to third world countries. It it can blow your mind. It it rocked my world. I I knew all the statistics about poverty, but that's not knowing poverty. 
when you smell it and you taste it and you see it and you, you, you get in there, that's when you begin to have some idea of what real poverty is. And uh, there's this incredible massive poverty in Haiti. At one point on this uh, trip with Providence Ministries, we were driving through the City Soleil, which is not really a city at all. It's really not even a village. It's more like a, a collection of lean-tos where about a million people have, homeless people, have developed sort of a town on a dump. Uh, and they, they, they live off the dump. It is just unbelievable. And we're driving through the City of Soleil, and the smell of the place was making me nauseous. I have a weak stomach anyways, and I was getting nauseous just by the sheer odor of the place. The windows were closed. It was a very hot day, but we had the air conditioning on. But still, the smell was, was making me nauseous. The sight of the level of poverty was just making me cry. Now, as I was looking out of the van, and we just were going through here just to get an idea of what it is like. As we were going through this village, I, we, we passed this corner where there's a, about a three-foot-high pile of garbage, rubbish. And on top of this pile was this naked little boy. I don't know how old he was. He looked like he was three or four, but he could have been nine because when you're that malnourished, you don't grow at the right rate. His head was orange, as, or his hair was orange as... Uh, most of the hair of these malnourished kids is. His stomach was bloated, extended, as is the case with these malnourished kids. It was probably full of worms and parasites. And as we passed him in this heap, he looked up, and he was, he was going through this garbage looking for some food. Kind of, he was picking stuff up, kind of smelling it, and, and looking for something to eat. And we passed him. And he looked up, and my eyes made co- eye contact with him. And we just stared into each other's eyes for this haunting moment. I don't have any idea how long it was. It's one of those things that's just frozen in time. But I was just looking into his soul and he's looking into my soul. And in that moment, the complete, utter absurdity of the situation just hit me. It just overwhelmed me. The utter arbitrariness and injustice of this why am I on the inside of this van looking out rather than the little kid looking in? There's no reason that can be given. It's utterly absurd. It's arbitrary. I didn't do anything in some pre-existent life that earned me the privilege of being born into wealth rather than poverty. And he didn't do any sin in a pre-existent life to warrant him being born in poverty rather than wealth. It just is the way the world is. And the absurdity of that just hit me. An image was frozen into my mind that uh, I have never lost. And I don't think I ever should leave. But when I came back from Haiti, um, I was ridden with guilt. The guilt of being an American. And there's a lot of what I was impacted with in Haiti that I should never lose. But there's some stuff I took with me from Haiti that I needed to lose. One of the things was the sense of guilt. But here's what happened is every dollar bill had this kid's face on it. And it felt like everything I purchased was really this decision. Do I want to purchase this or do I want to give it to the kid so we can live a day longer? And if you live in that mindset, the kid always gets the dollar. What would you buy if the choice is either you buy what you want to buy or a kid dies? You don't go to movies anymore. How can you go to movies because there are kids who, I mean, $7 on a movie could feed a kid for a week, maybe longer in Haiti. 
you know, you don't buy popcorn if you do go to movies because what a superfluous luxury that is. Kids are starving to death. Uh, you don't buy any extra clothes any more than the bare minimum because these kids don't have any kind of clothes. And, uh, you know, you, 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 you live at the absolute bare essentials so that everything else can go to keep a kid alive in Haiti. And that was sort of my mindset. I lived in what I called Schindler's Question. I even remember preaching on this back in the 90s. Uh, Schindler's Question. You might be saw the uh, film Schindler's List, one of the greatest films of all time, in my opinion. Uh, just a devastating, uh, emotionally wrecking film. But um, at the end of the film, Schindler's this guy who bought out of certain death uh, about a thousand Jews and had this sort of pretend company where he pretended to make things and pretended to hire them to keep them from being uh, deported to Auschwitz. And he was a hero for that reason. Uh, And at the end of the movie, he looks at this pin that he has, and all of a sudden it strikes him, who else could I have bought with this pin? Why did I keep the pin when somebody's life could have been spared? And, And this watch, how many lives could I have got with this watch? Why did I keep this watch? And this car, why did I keep this car? How many people could I have saved if I would have sold this car? I didn't do enough. And his, his Jewish colleague says, you did enough. And, and we're here because of it. But he's overwhelmed with this guilt. I didn't do enough. And I lived in that question. How many kids are going to die because I went to a movie? How many kids could I feed instead of going to this movie? How many kids could I feed if I didn't have this jacket or these nice tennis shoes? Or, you know, and, and it, it really wreaked havoc on my life for the better part of a year. It wasn't the happiest year in my marriage either. Um, this wasn't happy camping for anybody. My poor wife, she's very frugal and, and she's very aware of the war zone in which we live. And, and we, we, we you know, have always made a pledge to give a, a, a good percentage of our, our money away and invest it in, uh, in ministry. But, but she wanted curtains for our living room because we had these grandma curtains that we had inherited from somebody. And they were all shabby and they were dirty and they were ugly. And she said, can we just get some new curtains? And my response, it was the Schindler response, is, well, how many kids should we decide, you know, we'll, we'll starve to death because we're going to get nice curtains? Not the smartest answer a husband's ever given a wife. But see, feeling guilty about every extra thing that I had. And when Christmas came around, uh, that was tough. How can I possibly justify giving my kid, uh, you know, a Tetris Nintendo, they wanted a, a Tetris game, when that it could keep a kid alive for another month or two months? Uh, you know, and it's like there's always this starving kid right here, and yet there's American life over here, and how, do you, how, how can I justify anything here? And, and if you follow that logic through, and the logic seems impeccable on one level, you won't have peace until you're living in a shanty in the city of Soleil. Because uh, otherwise you'll have something that someone else doesn't have, and if you're doing that kind of mathematical equation, you're killing somebody because of that extra thing. You're playing a zero-sum game. Uh, it was a miserable year. Now, I, I began to think a little differently about this. It was a process. But um, I began to kind of wake up to something being wrong with this mindset. When I first noticed that the fruit of the Spirit wasn't being born out of this trajectory, this path that I was going, I noticed that, that my spirit was becoming judgmental. I disdained America. <laughs> Uh, it just, just the opulence and the luxury and the apathy. And, and, and I just found that I was becoming this, I had this kind of a pharisaical spirit. 
Whenever you make moves based on guilt, you'll become a Pharisee. I can guarantee you. I, I've known people who have given, gotten rid of all of their wealth and just gone in, into solidarity with the poor, which is a beautiful thing if God calls you that. Beautiful. But they did it out of guilt. And what happens is when you do it out of guilt, you project your guilt onto other people. And now you become mad at them because they didn't do what you did. And however you know, uh, low you're living, you want everyone else to go to that level. Uh, you sort of set the bar of righteousness because and some of the most judgmental, pharisaical people I've ever met have been people who have sacrificed everything for the poor. Uh, the motivation is not to be out of guilt. And I began to notice this, that this, this just doesn't feel like it's a Jesus mindset. Then I began to notice some things in Scripture that really puzzled me. Hey, did you notice that I, I did not lose my canister? This is two weeks now. Two weeks, my eco-friendly canister. I'm amazed at myself. I began to know, I noticed some things in scripture. I, here's one thing. Three things that bug me. First, there's that lady who pours out this expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus in John chapter 12. Uh, they say that that ointment, the kind of ointment it was, uh, could have uh, earned, could have gotten about a, a, a year's wages, average, average salary. And um, uh, one of the disciples, most people think it was Judas, complained saying, well, you know, shouldn't we have sold that perfume, that ointment, and given it to the poor? Think of all the people you could have fed with that ointment. But Jesus rebukes the disciple for thinking that. He goes, you know, if you're living out the kingdom, the poor are always going to be with you. Because we're supposed to be ministering to the poor. The poor you'll have with you. But I'm only with you for a little while, so indulge her this extravagance. This opulent worship. Superfluous worship. And I thought to myself, well, I, I, I agree with the complaining disciple. <laughs> Uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Come on, Jesus. What's more important, having nice-smelling feet or feeding kids for a year? For crying out loud. But I have the commitment that whenever I disagree with Jesus, I have to assume that he's right and I'm wrong. <laughs> it's kind of step one of humility. So there's something, something must be wrong with my thinking if I can't agree with Jesus on this. And then it bothered me that Jesus' first miracle was a throwaway miracle. He goes to a wedding, and the wedding in those days usually took three days. So he takes three days out of his already short ministry. And uh, then he, his first miracle is changing water into wine. What is up with that? These folks had drunken all the wine that the host had. Uh, they've already had enough wine, if you ask me. But Jesus wants to save the host in embarrassment, so he changes water into wine, and it's better wine than they had the first go-round. And I'm thinking to myself, how many crippled kids were there around uh, Palestine at this time that could have used that superfluous miracle? So while these guys are tipping it back, having more wine, there are kids who could have used that miracle. But I got to believe that Jesus is always right, so there must be something I'm missing here. Must be something I'm missing. I noticed that Jesus hung out at parties a lot with sinners, and tax collectors, and prostitutes. What's up with that? All the needs of the world, all the starving people of the world, all the crippled people of the world, all the people in spiritual bondage, and you're going to take a break and go on a party, and there's a lot of them if you read the Gospels, kicking back, drinking wine, and it, with, mixing it up with all these folks. I mean, what's the justification for that? And who could have used all the money that was spent on the, the, the beverages and, and the food at those parties? Couldn't that have been given to the poor? But Jesus seemed to just enjoy it. Didn't seem very guilty about it either. And then... Probably the most aggravating passage to me came when I noticed 1 Timothy chapter 6. Dan put this into PowerPoint. 
where Paul says, command those who are rich. That's us. Most of us, anyways, by world standards. Command those of us who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. So far, so good. I'm liking what he's saying. But now comes this. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them, the rich, that's us, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. What what bothers me about that passage is that Paul doesn't tell Timothy to command the rich not to be rich. In fact, he seems to endorse it by saying, command them to share and recognize, put their trust in God who gives us all these things, blesses us with all these things for our enjoyment. For our enjoyment. Apparently, we're supposed to enjoy some stuff. But how can you enjoy stuff, extra stuff, when there are people in the world who don't have the minimum stuff? But see, that was true in Paul's day. It was true in Jesus' day. And they still enjoyed extra stuff. So here's how I began to put all this together. And I want to just share it with us here this morning. Jesus manifested the kingdom. Everything about Jesus was the kingdom. He was the incarnation of the dome in which God reigns. And we are to, in every possible way, emulate him and follow his example and live like he lived. A central part of who Jesus was and what he did in the kingdom that he manifested was living in this outrageous generosity, this service to others, this caring about the poor, uh, the welcoming of the outcast, this, this, the, the sacrificial aspect of the kingdom. It is central, and we've been hammering on that, and it's important, and it's good, and never forget it. But if everything about Jesus was the kingdom, then that means that Jesus didn't stop being the kingdom when he went to parties. That also was the kingdom. There's no off button to the kingdom when you're talking about Jesus. And so I came to see that part of the kingdom, there's this this polarity, this this balance that we have to hit. Part of the kingdom, a central part of the kingdom is sacrificing for all people at all times uh, and manifesting the love of God sacrificially like Jesus did. That's, that's, That's a central part of the kingdom. But apparently in God's reign, as God... God's goal for the world included going to weddings. God's ideal for creation is also having parties, finding occasions to celebrate. God's, God's uh, uh, ideal for creation is apparently celebrating with superfluous expressions of praise and worship going beyond the bare minimum. A part of God's ideal for creation is to have creation there for people to enjoy. There's what you might call it the abundance aspect of the kingdom, the blessing aspect of the kingdom. Now, it's sad that most of the world can't enjoy that. At least much of the world can't enjoy that very much. They can't afford to go to weddings, can't afford to have parties, can't afford to have the wine, can't afford to pour out the ointment. Got that. They, can't, they don't get to enjoy the, the blessings of God. Much of the world can't. So we who can have to always be aware of that. And, and like Paul says, be willing to share and live the sacrificial uh, kingdom life. But we're not helping the world by denying altogether the abundant aspect of the kingdom. Because that also is part of God's reign to manifest that aspect of the kingdom. We don't help the world by sinking to the lowest common denominator. Rather, enjoying the things of creation is part of God's plan. What I realized was that I was... I'd gotten into this loop of, an imbalanced loop of manifesting the sacrificial part of the kingdom, but forgetting the celebrating part of the kingdom. Thinking that I could, somehow by my emphasizing the sacrificial part, I could make the world a fair place, which I can't. 
The world is just the way the fallen world is. I began to realize that I was playing God. And this is such an important principle. I came out of Haiti with a good sense of of poverty and my privilege and, and a sense of responsibility. That's good. But the problem was that I took on too much responsibility. I began to play God. I began to think that all the kids in Haiti are my responsibility. What God had to show me was this. Greg, you're not God, I am. And you can't, you can't shoulder. Anyone who tries to shoulder all the cares and the suffering of the, of, of the sad, sad war zone world, it will crush you. You'll become cynical, you'll become pharisaical, you'll become judgmental. And that's what was happening to me. What the Lord had to teach me was this. Greg, your job is to listen to me and I will tell you what chunk of responsibility to carry. And I'll empower you to joyfully carry that chunk. But don't try to carry more than I give you. And so as God worked in my life and in my wife's life and in the life of our small group, you know, we, we, we worked with Providence Ministry and took in these six kids and so we're supporting them and now there's this education project and it has grown over the years. But what I learned is this, it's so important to be totally honest and open with God saying, tell me what you want me to take responsibility for. Own that right responsibility and it will involve expressing the sacrificial dimension of the kingdom. But having done that, you put everything else on God. Because you can't handle it. It will crush your spirit if you try to bear all the burdens of the world. If you think you can make the world a fair place, uh, the world's not going to be a fair place until the Lord comes back. The poor will always be there. We have a responsibility to them, but not all of them. God will give you your chunk of responsibility. And your job is to carry that. It's not fair that I have stuff that other people don't have. It's not fair that I get to live in a house. I don't live extravagant. I think we live beneath where we could live because we're called to be kingdom people. But I certainly have clothes that that much of the world can't have. I have a house that much of the world can't have. I drive a car. It's not much of a car by American standards, but it's better than most of the world can have. I eat food that is better than most of the world can have. Uh, It's not extravagant food, but, but it's better than most of the world can have. I, I, but I don't make the world, I can't make the world fair by sinking to the lowest common denominator. It's just the, the way the, un, the unfair world is. My job is to listen to God who will direct me and my wife and my community as to how we should share the blessing that we have. But having done that, we're supposed to enjoy the blessing. Let me say a word about this question that has been raised to me several times. Are we, is it right to say that we're blessed because we have stuff that the rest of the world doesn't have? The passage here says God gives us all things, all good things for our enjoyment. But if God gives us, if, God, if we're blessed because we have the, the benefits of creation, then does that mean the people, that people who don't have it are cursed? If you say, well, you know, th- this, uh, this, this nice food here is a blessing from God, well then, is it a curse that other folks don't have even the, the bare minimum to eat? It's a good question to ask. Is God the cause of injustice? And how do you not say that if you're going to say, look, at it, look how he blessed us? Now that question arises because people assume that God is pulling all the strings. That God is the only variable in deciding what comes to pass. If God is pulling all the strings, then you just got to swallow the, the bitter pill and say, well, God blesses us and he's cursed them. Yeah, he is the cause of injustice. Lucky us, we're on the good side of things, but you know, those, those folks got, that got cursed. And of course, if that's your mindset, you're going to have a hard time having a lot of passion to help them because what's happening to them is just part of God's plan. But see, I don't believe that for a second, that God is the cause of any injustice. There's no darkness in him. There's no evil in him. There's nothing but the love that Jesus expresses in him. 
Look at what people decide and what angels decide also affects what comes to pass in this world. Uh, we are free agents. And I believe that every good thing in creation ultimately comes from God, who's the source of all goodness. But all the bad stuff in creation ultimately comes from wills other than God. And there are principalities and powers that are over this world, and, and there's human greed, and there's human sin, and there's human rebellion, and all sorts of other things. And, and all, of the, the, all aspects of creation that aren't in line with God's will, all the suffering, all the starvation, all the misery that people have to live in, uh, that, that is not reflective of God's will. What's reflective of God's will is to transform all that, and he'll use you and me to do that by giving us a little slice of it to take on. But see, I can still say, looking at this unjust, unfair, very sad world, that I am blessed, and I thank God for the blessing. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to attribute the ugly stuff to God. No, that I attribute to the devil and the principalities and powers and to fallen angels and to human wills that go along with, with, with their designs. And given that... I'm blessed, just fortunate. I'm going to thank God for that while I'm also going to always be listening to how he would have me steward his resources. This is the balance we need to live in. It's a tough one. And there's no rule book to how to do it. No one can write a book that says, here's exactly how all Western Christians should live. You should keep this much, but you should give that much. There's no book that... God deals with us all on an individual basis, which is why we can never judge another person. You know, someone once, a couple of years ago, said to me, you know, complain about these Christians who live in these half-million-dollar houses and how, how that is. First said million-dollar, half-million-dollar houses. You know, how, how they justify that. And so I just said, okay, what about a $250,000 house? Is that also greedy? Because that's better than 94% of the planet. He goes, yeah, yeah, I think that is greedy. I said, okay, what about a $100,000 house? Because that's, that's still better than about 70% of the planet. And I happen to know that he lived in a $98,000 house. <laughs> All right, so see, the person who's living in the shanty can look at you and you got the mansion. The point is this. You know, th- there's, no, there's no one bar that we can measure everyone up against and that's not our job anyways. That's God's job and he'll do it in the end. He's the only judge of the earth. Our job is to follow his will and he will lead us and we'll grow in our capacity and, and the joy that we have as we give extravagantly. But it's to be done out of a joy, not this shame over having stuff that other people don't have. You can't make the world f- a fair place. It's not a zero-sum game. The economy is way, way, way more complex than that. If everyone in America stopped purchasing, then the people who would suffer the most are not Americans, but the people in other countries who supply all that stuff. I mean, it's really a complex thing. But our, our assessment isn't to be based on any kind of economic plan or any kind of logical reasoning. It's to be based on following the will of God, who will give us a chunk of responsibility, and it will change over time as he grows us. But having done that, to let it go. You can't fix the world. Most of the evil in the world comes because people on their own ingenuity try to fix it. The only one who can fix the world is Jesus Christ, and he'll do it, when, when it when, when, finally when he comes back. But he'll give us a chance and an opportunity now, if we'll listen to him, to take on a chunk of that, and then another chunk, and then another chunk. And our only responsibility is to walk in obedience to this. So I'm going to celebrate Christmas, folks. I always do. I, I, I watch my Mr. Magoo Christmas Carol, and I, I, I and that's, that, that, that's always gets me in the Christmas spirit. And uh, you know, I watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the, an- the first animation, and Charlie Brown Christmas, and that's usually kind of my, my, my ritual for getting into the Christmas spirit. It's been a little harder this year than, than, than normal, but I'm starting to get there. But I'm going to celebrate Christmas, and I'm gonna, I, I'm, I won't buy into the consumer, you know, ster- consumerism on steroids frenzy that's going on. No, I, I think that's not, not wise. But I will give 
gifts to my loved ones that are beyond what is absolutely necessary. And I'll not feel guilty about that. Because that's how life was supposed to be lived. Celebrating is part of life. And even though Christmas is pagan in origin and a lot of the symbolism is pagan in origin, I'm still going to celebrate Christmas. I'm not going to get looped up in all the paganism and the consumerism, but I'm going to celebrate it. Uh, look at every day of the week we have is named after some pagan deity and all the months, most of them are named after some pagan deity. And most of them are, the fact that it originated that way, who cares about that? In a sad, sad world, we need excuses to celebrate. And here's a really good excuse. You know, Jesus went along with the culture. The culture celebrates these things, so he celebrated those things. That's part of how life was to be lived. And so our culture decides that December 25th is a time when they're going to celebrate, and some people actually think about Jesus a little bit uh, in, in this time. I don't think it adds to his significance one iota. It may actually work against it, so I will make, take great care not to buy into that and trivialize Jesus. But having said that, I'm going to celebrate without any guilt of conscience Christmas, and I'm going to enjoy the good things that I'm blessed with. Uh, having obeyed God in his leading in command, I put all the rest of the problems of the world, and they are massive, on him. Because I can't handle that. I can't handle that. The fruit of the Spirit goes out the back door the minute I take on more responsibility than I'm supposed to have. It crushes me, and it will crush you. Self-indulgence where you do nothing but enjoy the blessings and don't have any concern for the poor, that is an extreme we have to always avoid. But living in this guilt and carrying the burdens of the world all the time uh, judging others who don't do what we do, that's also extreme we have to avoid. The middle is the kingdom, and it looks like Jesus, who lived sacrificially and also enjoyed the blessings of God and partied and had superfluous stuff, and he didn't feel guilty about it. As the prayer team comes forward, I want to close in prayer. And if you're here, amen. Thanks. I... I really felt like that was something, wasn't what I planned to say, but I think it's what I was supposed to say. If you have any need here this morning that you'd like to have prayed for, maybe it's trying to discern this, this delicate balance, what God's will is for your life right now, or, or, uh, or maybe it's a physical or relational or financial need, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. If you just want to pray at the front of the altar, you're free to do that as well. Let me just close with this prayer. Lord, it all belongs to you. We belong to you. Just lead us and guide us. I pray, Lord God, both, both for those who are not aware enough of their duty to listen to you and further the wartime effort in sharing of their resources with others. Lord, wake them up to their responsibility to live sacrificially. I also pray, God, for those of us who are on the other side of the spectrum who carry too much of the weight of the world. And, and it tends to erode our, our spirit and... and, and compromise the fruit of the Spirit and, and the joy of living in the kingdom. I pray, Lord God, that you'd help them enjoy the fact that it's not fair, but they happen to be here and they have extra stuff. And uh, I pray, God, that you put in our hearts a sense of gratitude, not to put any trust in it at all because it's so uncertain, as Paul says, but to thank you for it, to trust you for it, and then to obey you with it. Thank you for it, trust you for it, and obey you with it. That's the right attitude towards riches. We give you thanks for all things you give for our enjoyment in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, God bless you. Drive home safely. It's getting slippery out there. <laughs>